All right, this morning we are exploring the theme of the fourth Advent candle, the one we just lit. It's called the love candle in the context of Advent, right? Um, we're looking at God's love. And we look at the, the word Advent is from the Latin Adventus, which simply means arrival or coming. And as we light the Advent candle each week, we're, we're being reminded of the different, the different things that Jesus, what his birth means for humanity. Peace, hope, joy, and love. Looking at the good news of Jesus' birth, it's a good news of great joy that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will have eternal life. That's what we're looking at today, the love of God. Jesus said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love never ends. Prophecies, they're going to come to end. Knowledge is going to come to an end, but love never ends. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. The Holy Scriptures, the Bible, instruct us that God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. This is how John defines love in 1 John. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's an amazing passage of scripture. Christians are instructed, let all that you do be done in love. You don't do something in love, you're like a clashing cymbal, like a gong. Just doesn't sound good. So this morning I'd like to consider the love of God, and I think what is, it's been described as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It's a beautiful passage of the love of God. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Zephaniah. (laughs) You study Zephaniah frequently, so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a a grouping in the prophets, that's what's called the minor prophets. It's in between the book of Habakkuk and Haggai. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 14. Zephaniah is a prophet who warned about the coming judgment of the Lord. The coming wrath of God, the great day of the Lord is what we prophesied about, he predicted. A day of reckoning where God is going to overthrow the wicked and he promises also to punish his people. His people, the nation that he called to be his witness, the the people that were called to be a light to the nations, a kingdom of priests. But they had forsaken their calling. They wanted to be like the other nations. They weren't a contrast community. They weren't a representation, an ambassador of God. And although the people of God were to be people of violence and justice and mercy, they were in fact people of oppression. They filled their houses with violence and deceit. And Zephaniah promises that judgment is coming upon violence and evildoers. So Zephaniah calls the people to repentance, to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, to be in right relationship with God. He calls them to seek humility. And he warns and promises judgments against Jerusalem and Judah and the nations. His people, they're, they're proud and boastful. They scoffed at God and his people. And God says the ultimate reason for the judgment is their pride. And judgment is coming. But as with many of the prophets, Zephaniah doesn't end with the word of judgment. It ends with the word of hope and the word of mercy. 
and in a word of grace. God promises after this day of judgment for there to be a day of restoration and renewal. So there's going to be a global awakening. The nations, they're going to come together and be gathered around God, and they're going to be purified. They're going to be restored. And it's in light of this judgment and the remnant that's going to be re- restored, Jer- Jeremiah, Zephaniah writes this in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that they will no longer suffer reproach. Again, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So I'd like to consider this morning, what are the people of God called to do? What has God promised that he will do in his love? And how do we respond in light of that? Sounds good? What are the people of God called to do? In light of the promise of future restoration and renewal, what are they called to do? I kind of kind of three things that are grouped together. First, sing aloud and shout, right? Second, rejoice and exult with all your heart. And third, fear not and let not your hands grow weak. Sing aloud. Let's look at the first one. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Sing aloud. Loud singing is what the people of God are called to do. Like Michael in the Christmas movie Elf, he catches his dad at the end of the movie and he says, wait, dad, you're not singing. And he says, what do you mean? He says, you're just moving your lips. Dad goes, Michael, please, what's the big deal? And I go, Dad, and he's finally singing, you better watch out, Santa Claus is coming. You guys know the scene in the movie, and Elf? And then all of a sudden, Santa and Buddy fly over in the sleigh as the singing of the dad has increased the Christmas cheer meter to that Santa's sleigh can finally obtain elevation and flight. And what is in the movie, Elf? Buddy the Elf says this, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is... Singing loud for all to hear. We know it, right? Even Buddy the Elf knows this principle. God's people are commanded to sing. We find both in the Old and New Testament calls for the people of God to sing. And singing is not just for people with beautiful voices. Singing is not just for people who enjoy singing. Singing is not just for people who are a little bit musical. All of God's people have been instructed to sing. Psalm 100 says this, make a joyful noise to the Lord. You might not have a pretty voice, but you can do this. Amen. You can make a noise. Come on, come on, come on, preach it. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing yes. 
psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God in your hearts. We know this principle. We praise what we prize. We shout at what we find triumphant. There is no little prompt, I have never seen this watching football, that when your team scores a touchdown, a little prompt comes up onto the screen, stand and shout at this moment. As if the announcer goes, at this moment now, please stand and shout for your team. It's like intrinsic to us. We know to do this. We find something, we find glory in something, we praise it. Right? There's not little instructions for lovers to praise the ones that they love. We do it. No one told me to write love poetry to Stephanie. I just had all these feelings that I wanted to communicate to her when we were dating. Well. <laughs> <laughs> we celebrate what we cherish. Amen? Amen? So does God call us to feel a certain way? Does God command feeling. I think so. Look at that. So sing, shout, but then look, rejoice and exult. You know what rejoice and exult means? Feel gladness. Right? Shouting and singing, that's the outward expression. We know what that looks like. We can hear it, some of us, more than others. Rejoicing is the inward. These are, they're not the same. They, they involve the, the emotion. And, and the heart in Jewish thought was the center of a person's thought and will and desires and conscience, the mind, the emotion, the knowledge of right and wrong, the will. It's all in the heart, according to Jewish thought. So exult with all your heart is with all mind, will, conscience, emotion, desire. All of this is rejoicing in God. Rejoice, it doesn't mean sing. It means to express joy. You can rejoice and ex express that in singing, but rejoicing is not singing, it's, the, it's within. It's the heart. It's to cause joy to, to give joy to, to, to gladden. Look at the etymology of this word. It comes from the old French, re It's like, you know, replenish, rebuild, reset, rewrite. It's like causing joy, rejoice. Give joy to, and, and then exalt. Exalt is not a word that we might use very much in modern day vernacular, but exalt to be as an, I, I love this definition, exalt is to be in a reveling state of great happiness. A state of enjoyment, intense satisfaction, feel our show triumphant jubilation. Exalt. So God doesn't just command, hey, sing and sing loud and shout. Make a noise. This is make a joyful noise and, and do so from a joyful heart. So God commands feelings. How could that be? Are we in control of our feelings? Aren't, aren't they just like they come and go and you fall in and out of love like you can just be walking along and pff, oh, now I'm in love. It just happened to me. <laughs> we are called to delight in God to have feelings and attitudes of joy to make that expression of joy known as Pastor and author John Piper writes it, the engagement of the heart in worship is the coming alive of the feelings and emotions and affections of the heart. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. The prophet said that, you know, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So to not to delight in what is most delightful is not true worship. 
The real duty of worship is not the outward duty to say or do. It's the inward duty of Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. The tendency for us, I think, can be to focus on the external acts. I worshiped God today. I sang, I prayed, I took the Lord's Supper. But if our actions are disconnected from our heart, the scriptures say that actually doesn't honor God. God's people are rebuked as they're described, as their hearts are not in joyful praise and adoration of God. To not enjoy God or to feel joy in God is a a failure to enjoy God as God. British philosopher and writer C.S. Lewis said it this way, "It's, it's a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as they can. That's the Christian calling, to be as happy as you can. Right? A wife, my wife, Stephanie, is not honored when I don't enjoy her presence. Stephanie, I know I need to hang out with you, and I'm going to sit down with you and listen because this is my duty as her husband. And I say it just like that. She's going to be honored by that? <laughs> no, I'm going to hang out with my friends. I'm going to hang out with someone who wants to hang out with me. That doesn't honor Stephanie. It's not, it's not that I do this because I have to. True worship of God is not kind of a dead religious moralism. It's not that I do this because I have to. It's not because I intellectually just agree with it as if my mind is disconnected from my emotions. It's not as if I'm, I'm here for the sermon, but my heart's not really engaged. I'll check my phone. I'd rather watch a football game. I've, you know, I've been here. I'd rather do sports, play sports, or do anything sports related than gather with the church on Sundays. My heart was not engaged. But right worship is not cold and distant hearts. It's not feelings and emotions don't matter. On the other hand, it's not that I don't have any controlling of my feelings, as if we're enslaved to our feelings. I think this is one of the more popular messages in our culture, isn't it? Feelings, they just kind of hit us, and we're the recipients of them, but we're kind of guided along by them, but we're not really in control. We just have to realize them and then express them. That's kind of our job. It doesn't mean if it's Disney or Nicholas Sparks. Nicholas Sparks, Walk to Remember, he writes this. Love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. It kind of comes and goes. Sometimes it's here. Right? Or Lady Gaga said it really vividly. She said, some women choose to follow men, and some women choose to follow their dreams. If you're wondering which way to go, remember that your career will never wake up and tell you that it doesn't love you anymore. You see, underlying that principle is her belief that you can just wake up and no longer I feel love towards you. I don't have to love you anymore. I'm gone. We don't control our love desires. You can fall out of love. You can stop something loved once when you can move on. Right? This is the call. Worship in singing loud. Singing. Shouts. Engage the heart in that. You're causing the heart to be glad and joyful. And thirdly, he says there on verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Zion, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be frightened. Fear is a, an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. And again, I think one of our, the messages in our society is not simply that you feel anxiety, but that you have anxiety, as if it's some sort of condition. When someone says, it's, I have anxiety, they can talk about I have anxiety as if it's kind of like a genetic condition. I just have to take medication. I'm just going to have this for the rest of my life. It's an incurable disease. But to, be, to have anxiety is to be human. 
Jesus acknowledges that in Matthew. There's a sense in which to be human, we're always going to have anxiety, some degree present in our heart. And anxiety is a form of fear. It comes from the belief that I am in danger. Someone's going to hurt me. Something is going to cause me pain. In the broken world that we live in, anxiety is it's common, it's prevalent, as it's often a response from trauma, having a traumatic experience. The ability to trust has been shattered. Individuals who have had abusive fathers may be slower to trust in viewing God as a father or the beauty of what it means to have God as a father. Individuals who have been in abusive relationships may be slow to trust people again. They have anxiety of being around people. They have a fear of getting hurt again. Church members who have been spiritually abused by a pastor will have anxiety in, in the church. Is the pastor trustworthy? If I had this poor experience, I, I'm going to struggle to let my guard down and really let people know me. Anxiety is remedied not by simply having someone tell you, stop it. Don't be anxious. It's remedied when we treasure, when we trust in something that can never be taken away from us. Ultimately, the thing to be feared most in our life, the judgment, the wrath, the displeasure of God, God says, I'm going to deal with your oppressors. You, have, you don't have to fear evil anymore from me or anything else. My friend Christian, who's a licensed psychotherapist, says that anxiety comes from a person trying to control something in their life that they were never intended to control. Dr. Jeremy Pierre, the professor of biblical counseling at Southern Seminary, says, when, whenever you notice fearful patterns in a person's life, you know that they are gripping something with a very closed hand before God. The underlying principle is that if I have to have this, and if I don't have this, I have nothing. And God is saying, you don't have to be afraid because I'm here. I'm in your midst, and you have no fear of punishment and Evil. Zephaniah can call the people not to be afraid because what is the most precious, valuable, true thing? God and his love and his kingdom cannot be taken away. Right? There's helpful tools in addressing the problem of anxiety and fear, but ultimately God is after something much bigger than how we seek to address our fear or anxiety. God is after our whole heart. And we address anxiety by becoming convinced that God is my all in all. And if I have him, I have everything that I need. Growing in trust of God and trusting in his kind and loving care and provision. It says, don't be afraid. Don't let your hands grow weak, right? Fear has a way of paralyzing us. Fear has a way of, of we're afraid of getting hurt, so we stay distant and withdrawn. But many of you here might not identify as I'm a fearful person. But what about in relationships? When was the last time you really let your guard down and told someone your sins? Do you have people that you do that with? We might be afraid so we don't take risks. We might be afraid that we're not going to be accepted so we don't present our true self. We present a kind of false self, a self that we've doctored and created that I think people will like this version of me, so I'm going to present this version. I presented myself before and I've gotten hurt. I haven't felt accepted. So I'm going to keep that little guy tucked away. And here's the self that I think people will like. Anyone relate with that? I'm preaching this to myself. We work, we worship, we devote ourselves to the Lord because we have been given courage. We have come to fear God above evil. And we don't have to worry about 
the fear of evil or punishment, and not having this fear fuels hard work. He says, don't let your heart grow weary. So, what's God called us to do? Shout and sing. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. And three, do not be afraid. Let not your hands grow weak. Now let's consider what God has promised in Zephaniah 3. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those from among you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and I will bring you in and I will gather you together and I will make you renowned and praised and I restore your fortunes before the Lord. So we're called to do three things. I counted 16 things that God promises to do in this passage. Take away the judges for you. Two, cleared away your enemies. Three, promised to come as king. Four, he's a mighty one who will save. Five, God's going to rejoice over you. Six, he's going to quiet you. Seven, he's going to exult over you. Eight, he's going to gather those who mourn. Nine, he's going to deal with all the oppressors. Ten, he's going to save the lame. Eleven, he's going to gather the outcast. Twelve, he's going to change their shame into praise and renown. Thirteen, he's going to bring them in. Fourteen, he's going to gather them together. Fifteen, he's going to make them renowned among all the peoples. Sixteen, he's going to restore their fortunes. All, that's all stuff God promised to do. And what are we called to do in light of that? Sing and shout. Rejoice and exult. Don't be afraid and don't let our hands grow weary. Let's look at the love of God. Why does God do this for his people? Verse 17. First time I came across this passage, I didn't believe it. I thought it was too good to be true. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Okay, that's God talking. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What does the voice of God sound like? And he's going to do it loudly. Do you know this heart that God has for his people? Do you know how God feels towards you? Do you know his delight in you? We see in this passage, God is not some kind of distant, aloof, emotionless, emotionally dead deity that says, okay, if I have to, I'll save these people. I made a commitment to them and I'm going to honor my word, but man, they mess up a lot. Gosh, they could just get it together. It's as though God delights in his people so much that that delight boils up into he's singing over them. You ever just bust out in praise? Like, man, you have those brisket nachos, and thank you, Jesus. I mean, I do this, right? Thank you, Jesus, for nachos. You are so good. You made these taste buds for me to enjoy. You ordained that this cow would be slaughtered and butchered and cut up and placed on this bed of nachos, and you ordained that for my enjoyment, that I would get a glimpse of how good you are through these nachos. Wow. God is so good to me. God's delight and the culmination is bursting out in praise, celebration over his people. It says he will quiet you by his love. And as I was studying that verse for 17, the Hebrew wording of it is, is 
it could mean a couple different things. It could mean uh, quiet you, but it could also be rendered as quiet or rests, as if God is going to be quiet over you in his love. It's as though the, the mighty one, the divine warrior, is no longer, he's no longer crying out in war. There's no more war cry. It's a cry of rest. It's a quiet love. Kenneth Baker writes this in the New American Commentary. Yahweh, the Lord, joins the people singing and soothes them by expression love. God will be quiet over you in his love. It kind of presents this vivid imagery of the Lord God himself as he thinks about his love, as he considers his love. He's quiet in it. It, like, it amazes him. It's hard to believe that the reason God delights in his people is because he delights in his people. Yeah. It originates from his own character. God loves his people because he loves his people. The reason God delights in his people is not because they were so great and faithful and worthy to be delighted in. Or one pastor say, God loves us not because we were lovely, but he loves us to make us lovely. Amen. The love and delight of God is grounded in his own character. He shows love because as Micah writes, he delights to show steadfast love. The prophet Micah. Although Micah could say something like that, I'm sure too, but... <laughs> been said that trying to understand the love of God is like a child digging a trench on the beach, trying to gather the limitless expanse of the ocean into a small trench. The poet says that the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. It goes, it reaches to the lowest hell. In the love of God, it's because of the love of God, this undeserved kindness, delight in his people. This is why he does this. He promises to take away the judgments. He promises to clear away the enemies. He promised to come as the king, Yahweh himself, the great I am, is coming as king. He promised to save. He promised to gather those who mourn. He promises to deal with the oppressors. He promises to save the lame. He promises to gather the outcast. He promises to change shame into rejoicing. He promises to bring people in and gather us together where he will rejoice over us, delight in us, and exult with loud singing. Same word, exult, rejoice. The feeling of great joy over us. This great day of the Lord arrived in the advent, the coming of Jesus. The removal of judgments, the pardoning of sin, the renewal and redemption comes as Christ is born. That's what we celebrate each year as we remember Advent. Jesus Christ is God, the King of Israel, the Messiah. He is Yahweh in our midst. So the prophet writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in our midst, it's coming to be fulfilled. The mighty one of Israel, the warrior who saves, was arrived in the birth of Jesus. And Jesus took a little bit different approach than you might expect. Doesn't just come kind of, you know, cascading down a escalator of, from heaven in a white, you know, robe and swords with two hands on a, on a horse. He's saying, I'm going to deal with all this evil. Wah, wah. He's like, evil's gone and I'm going to gather my... No, he says, it's, it comes as a baby. And he's born in a manger. And he comes in humility. He describes his heart as gentle and lowly. 
He identifies with the lowly and the sinners. He takes away the judgments and the scandal of grace by taking upon himself. He takes away the curse from God by becoming the curse. He takes away sins by becoming sin in our place. He showed his great love for his people by dying on the cross and yet showed his great power, the mighty one who will save, that on the third day he rose again. And after Jesus resurrected, he instructed his disciples, go and share this message of good news with all people, starting in Jerusalem and to the ends of the age. And he says, behold, I am Emmanuel. I will be with you always to the end of the age. God now indwells his church through the promised Holy Spirit that we get to enjoy now that causes us to see things rightly, to believe things rightly, and to feel rightly. The Acts tell us that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with joy, this feeling of happiness and delight in God. So it's in light of this that God's people, the church, we are called to sing, to rejoice, to feel joy, to express gladness with our whole heart. God has promised that this day of the Lord, this day that began with the birth of Jesus, will one day be fully realized, and we will hear the voice of God singing. We know the final casting out of evil, the final enemies punished has not yet fully happened. But as we await for that beautiful day of hearing God rejoice and sing over us and exult and delight in us with loud singing by faith, we sing in anticipation of hearing God sing over us. We look forward anticipating the day of the Lord where he will rejoice over us and quiet us in his love. Church family, in light of the promise of God in light of the realities that have begun at the dawn of Advent, the coming of Jesus. It's in light of the second coming of Jesus that we sing, we rejoice, we seek to not be afraid. Notice there's not a little asterisk there that says, only on Sundays, only on Saturdays. Rejoicing, singing, exulting is not a one day a week activity. At least I don't believe that's what God has called us to do. We can sing in our devotional time. We can sing as we drive to work. We can sing as we suffer. Husbands and wives can sing together to the Lord. Fathers can lead their families in singing to the Lord. We are called to sing. You don't sing simply when you feel delight and happiness of God. You sing as a way of calling your heart to feel truly what should be felt. Does that make sense? like, oh, I don't feel like, I don't feel joy and happiness. Oh, man, I'm hungry. I want to get home and eat my lunch. Man, I've had a hard day. I've really had a hard week. I just need some me time. Just need to go home and be by myself and just veg out, disconnect my mind and my emotions and just, oh, veg. We sing as a way of calling our heart to find what is most delightful, delightful. It's a way of praying. Feel rightly, heart. Be glad, heart. Rejoice, heart. That's what we do when we sing. We don't wait, okay, when I really feel happy in God, then I'll sing. Then they'll know. No, no, no. The most you should probably be singing is when you don't feel happiness in God. That is the invitation to sing, God is exceedingly greater, right? Do you you believe that God is exceedingly greater than a walk-off home run? I do. 
Do you believe that God is exceedingly greater than a Hail Mary touchdown and your team scores and wins? Do you believe that God is exceedingly greater than the beauty of humanity, the people that we can praise and admire? Do you believe that God is exceedingly greater than the sunsets that we adore and feel awe in? We sing as a way of praying for God to make reality more clear for us to prize what is most praiseworthy. James K.A. Smith, he wrote this little book called You Are What You Love. I love the way he, he words this. It says, worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to God to show our devotion and give him praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't something we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is in the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Increasing, another way you could think about this is increasing in the knowledge of the love of God leads to singing and rejoicing and exalting in God. But singing and rejoicing and exalting in God increases our knowledge and love of God. In light of seeing the love of God and remembering the love of God as we light the third Advent candle, I pray that our season of Advent would be a season of singing and shouting, rejoicing with all our heart, so much so that we burst out into song. And singing has a way of reminding us that we have a unique promise and belief that even sorrow and sadness cannot take away the reason for our joy. The Apostle Paul writes this tension verse that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We can walk in this tension of being sad yet still rejoicing. As Charles Spurgeon said so eloquently, any person can sing when his cup is full of delights. But the believer alone has songs when waters of a bitter cup are wrung out of him. Any sparrow can chirp in the daylight, but only the nightingale can sing in the dark. As children of God, whenever the enemy seem to prevail over us, whenever the ranks of the foe appear sure of victory, then we must begin to sing. Our victory will come with our song. One of my favorite Christmas movies, I think, illustrates this point of the power of song and the power of singing and how it can transform or shape our hearts as God works in us. And one of my favorite movies is, is how, the, how the Grinch Stole Christmas. I like the, the, the old one, the old cartoon one. Just hear the song of Thurl Ravenscross, deep, bellowing voice. You know, you're a mean one. You're a mean, I just, it's beautiful. Just bellowing, right? It's, I can't even do it. And the, the transformative moment in the movie, do you guys know what it is? But what causes his heart to grow three sizes too small? The moment I think the transformative moment in the movie is when the moment the, moment the Grinch happens as he hears singing. He hears all the Whovilles in Whoville singing. Even though they don't have presents, all their food, their toys, it's been taken away from them by the Grinch, he still hears this song, right? It's kind of meaningless. Or I don't know what the words mean. Fa who forest, who forest. They're singing, Christmas has come. It doesn't matter about the toys, the, everything's gone, they're singing the song. It's kind of nonsensical, catchy little song. They're singing around the, the tree, and the story reads as follows. It was a quarter of dawn, and all the who's still in bed, all the who's still a snooze when he packed up his sled. 
Packed it up with their presents, their ribbons, their wrappings, their snoof and their fuzzles, their tringlers and trappings. 10,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode up with the load to the tip top to dump it. Poo hoo to the who's, he grinchily humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up, I know just what I'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the who down in Whoville will all cry, boo hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. He paused and the Grinch put a hand to his ear. He did not hear a sound. He did, however, hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low and it started to grow, but this sound wasn't bad. Why, this sounded glad. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming, it came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch with the puzzling feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. He puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something that he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a bit more. The people of God are called to celebrate. <laughs> if the Who's and Whoville are celebrating and singing to Fahu Foray, whatever that means, Dahu Foray, we can sing that every year Christmas comes just the same. We remember the birth of Jesus. Nothing can take that away and nothing will take away his promise to come again. And in light of his promise in light of his heart towards us that he will rejoice and delight in us we rejoice and delight in him and sing to him so we sing and we shout we rejoice and we exult we fear not and we do not let our hands grow weak because he has promised to deal with our oppressors to save to be king among us to gather those who mourn to deal with our oppressors to save the lame to gather the outcast to change shame into rejoicing and to bring the peoples together as one. So we sing in anticipation of God, of hearing God sing loudly over this. Man, what is that going to be like? I can't even imagine it. So we sing and shout, and we rejoice and exult, and we fear on, and we press on together in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, the wonder of your love, it, it, it truly is hard for me to grasp and believe that, that you will rejoice and delight in me and us, in your church and in your gathered people. You delight. Lord, thank you that it, it is because it's, it's, it's your holiness. It's, you're so unique and so set apart that, that you love and it, it's unconditional never-ending love that originates because of you, not because of us. So, Father, I pray that this Advent season would be a time in which we get, we get time, we take time to revel in the love of God. That we love not because, you know, we, we mustered it up in ourselves. We love because you loved us first. And I pray that as we, we consider and reflect upon your love, that it would overflow in song, in delight, in love and thanksgiving towards you, and that you would give us creativity 
in love towards our neighbors, our family, our coworkers, our community? Would you help us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, as you love us? Lord, thanks for what you're doing in this church. Lord, for the, the joy and the excitement and your grace that is at work in this church body. Please continue to be gracious to us and be kind to us. Please have your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Bless us, Father, please, that we might in turn bless you and bless others. Pray that you would be honored as we respond now, as we sing. You would cause our hearts to rejoice and be glad to come into the Lord's presence with singing and with glad hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.